Want to listen to this Ivory Tower Boiler Room or True Crime and Academia episode ad-free? Head on over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash Ivory Tower Boiler Room to listen to all of our podcast episodes without any ads. You get access to our video episodes, our bonus episodes, and even more exclusive content, including merchandise. It only starts at $5 a month, so head on over to our Patreon. Again, it's patreon.com slash ivorytowerboilerroom. And while you're at it, you know what would be such a help is if you could rate and review the Ivory Tower Boiler Room on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And make sure that you follow us and share out our podcast to all of your friends. It truly does help. And I want to thank you all. It means so much that you're listening to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I hope that you enjoy this episode. I needed to write about those films because I was trying to, in a way, do something analogous, right? I was trying to bring to light and document a subculture. And it's a subculture that for which this mode of representation is, is, is central. And so I needed to write about those films. And you know, when I was, when I was conceptualizing the book, um, I, I thought my idea was, I'll have a long footnote about bareback porn, right? And mm -hmm. <laughs> When it came to writing the footnote about bareback porn, you know, the footnote became 100 pages and then it's like two chapters of the book, right? Hi, this is Andrew, and I'm interrupting what I know is an exciting ITBR episode to talk to you about one of our sponsors, the Gay and Lesbian Review. Discover new things about gay and lesbian literature, history, and culture with a subscription to the Gay and Lesbian Review, a bi-monthly magazine of history, culture, and politics that publishes essays in a wide range of disciplines, as well as a slew of reviews of books, plays, and movies, and a number of special features, such as artist profiles and our popular art memo column. Each issue of the Gay and Lesbian Review brings you consistently intelligent, lively, thought-provoking articles focused on a unifying theme, and it brings together the leading minds on the topic. You won't find a lot about the latest dating fads or fashion trends, but you will definitely find articles about online dating, like using Grindr as a social phenomenon, or even the gay influence on 20th century fashion. Did you know that I've actually interviewed three gay and lesbian review contributors? Make sure you listen to my Ignacio Darnod Breaking the Gay Code in Art episode, where Ignacio explains that key artistic figures like Michelangelo, Donatello, Thomas Eakins, J.C. Leyendecker, and Tama Finlan all have really explicit homoerotic artwork. And then head on over to the next episode where I talk with Dr. Vernon Rosario about LGBTQ psychiatry and how homosexuality got depathologized. And our most recent episode was with the Gay and Lesbian Review's literary editor, Martha E. Stone, and she talks about what LGBTQ literature you should be reading this summer and also how to become a contributing writer and a reviewer for the Gay and Lesbian Review. To subscribe, visit glreview.org. That's 
G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W.org, click subscribe, and enter the promo code ITBR to receive a free copy with any print or digital subscription. And as an added bonus, you also receive online access to all of the Gay and Lesbian Reviews archived issues. All of them. Okay, enjoy your reading, everyone. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, the summer season. Um, I was joking with my guest here that I now have changed my Zoom name to doctor, but we'll see. I'm relishing changing all my social media accounts to doctor, and then eventually I'll let it, the moment will pass, but I'm going to soak as much juice out of this as I can. But I want to introduce a really special guest, someone who I've known since I was an undergrad in terms of work. Um, not in terms of actually talking with him. So it really is a beautiful manifestation that he's joined here in the Ivory Tower Boiler Room with me. I'm joined with Dr. Tim Dean, who's a British philosopher, author. He is all things queer theory um, and literary theory. He is the James M. Benson Professor in English at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. He is the author of Unlimited Intimacy, Reflections on the Subculture of Barebacking, Beyond Sexuality. Recently, he published The Hatred of Sex with Oliver Davis. Uh, he also did a Walt Whitman poetic article that is in my dissertation. Um, and he also contributed to Homosexuality and Psychoanalysis, which is staring at me because I have all of his books in front of me. Well, Tim. Without further ado, thank you so much for joining me here. Yeah. Thank you, Andrew. It's great to be on your show. Thank you for inviting me. I'm delighted to, to be here, and I look forward to, to talking with you. Yeah, well, right away, I mean, I'm going to want everyone to be on the edge of their seats for when we discuss barebacking and unlimited intimacy and that 2009 moment um, when your work came out which to give context, I was in high school. Um, but I do remember seeing that cover and what that was like as an undergrad. But I think even before that, if we can journey back, Tim, on this adventure in the 1990s when you got your PhD, what was it like? I knew you were working on not necessarily queer cultural studies, but it seems like you were really interested in psychoanalysis. Like, how did that first enter the realm of what you were interested in? Right, right. Yeah, I think it's it's good to give some prehistory to to the work that, <clears throat> excuse me, um, your listeners might be, the work of mine, the listeners might be most familiar with. Um, yeah, you know, I went to graduate school, I graduated from college in 1988, when you were not even in high school yet, right? Um, I wasn't you, alive yet. But. Right, right. Um, I went to graduate school, I, I graduated and went to graduate school in 1988. And, you know, queer theory did not exist at that point, right? It was something we were, at the end of the 80s, start of the 90s, starting to invent you know, and I went to graduate school to in English to study poetry. Um, and I wrote a dissertation on Hart Crane, 
Um, although I also did, of course, read Whitman uh, in graduate school and in college, although not in high school, we don't do that in England, right? Um, so, but I was also very engaged, you know, I was sort of engaged in two fronts in graduate school when I was living in Baltimore, in addition to working on poetry. You know, one was engaged in a kind of intense set of theoretical debates about how to think about sexuality and gender. Um, we had feminism, we had the history of feminist theory and feminist activism, and we had sort of gay studies and, and gay activism, and we were starting to think more broadly in terms of queer, right? And, and we were thinking about it both in terms of politics and in terms of conceptualization. And the other, the other, um, the other thing that was sort of, sort of unavoidably pressing itself upon me was that we were in, we were still in the first decade of the AIDS epidemic, right? And I had just moved to the United States to this very urban environment, and I was getting involved in in that kind of work. And as a young, at that point, <laughs> at that point, a young gay man, you know, I was thinking about, okay, what does this mean for, for my, for my life, for my sex life, for my, for my community. Uh, and that was, that was part of being in Baltimore, not simply being at Johns Hopkins in graduate school. And for me, those two things came together. Um, a thinking about AIDS, thinking about queer, thinking about sexuality. And, you know, I'm, this is a long way round of talking about psychoanalysis, which I was not actually uh, sure we were going to talk about today. Um, psychoanalysis was, I, I came sort of armed, armed with, with um, some psychoanalytic uh, readings, knowledge, uh, perspectives, it's, it's sort of part of my worldview, really, which I think has to do with not being, also has to do with not being American, the status of, the different status of psychoanalysis in British intellectual life versus American intellectual life. So I was always interested in, you know, the, the status of sexuality vis-a-vis -vis the unconscious and the importance of fantasy. And those are uh, concepts and ideas and themes that have stayed sort of either on the surface or subterranean in my work, I think, for, for, for a long time. Um, yeah, well, and I'm sure you're aware of there's this whole, the concept of the pre-homosexual in terms of like moving before Foucault or like before Victorian sure. sexology. I mean, I even in my dissertation talk about the pre-homosexual with looking more at Whitman's depictions of same-sex desire between men without using, um, arguing against using anachronistic, like trying to throw on terms of homosexuality, sure. bisexuality, sure. Um, to look deep into the poetics. But like what I love what you're saying about, about psychoanalysis, Tim, is the reason I am so interested in that approach when you were working on Hart Crane in your PhD with your dissertation is because I know that you um, kind of like Vernon Rosario, who's been on the show, Thomas uh, Wow, uh, Wow, 
no, Thomas Woe, uh, who did Hard to Imagine, that book. Um, sorry, Thomas. I knew I'm going to get your last name right. Um, but my name is very easy to pronounce. I know. Well, Dean, yes, you, you had the, um, you know, you're very lucky with uh, the phonetics. But you also like we're part of seeing that changing wave. And then I remember your article on the eve of a queer future is just so beautifully done in the 90s. And it's like right when Judith Butler has done gender trouble, we have epistemology of the closet with Eve Sedgwick. And I know that you worked or knew Leo Bersani and he had the essay is the rectum a grave, which is before queer theory technically in term in our lineage, but right, it, he really was thinking through the AIDS epidemic and how do we get pleasure as gay men or queer men specifically? Like what was, how did Leo Bersani, is this, you had read his essay and then you were introduced to him or had you always known Leo Bersani during your PhD work? Um, no, that's that's a great question. And Andrew, I, I um, it's very touching to me that you say such nice things about that um, on the eve of a queer future essay from long ago, which was not which was not universally received with with adoration or respect at the time, right? Um, and I think that one of the things that drew me to Leo and sort of was was at the was at the basis of our friendship was the sense that uh, in order to be um, sort of intellectually serious and um, rigorous and intellectually full strength in a way what was becoming queer theory queer studies had to be willing to air uh, debates you know, had, had to be willing to have argument, we had to be willing to really have arguments with each other uh, about ideas and about politics within the field and not keep, keep those in the closet. Um, and my willingness uh, as, a, as a young person to, to have those arguments with people like Judith Butler, both in the classroom and in print and with people like Eve Sedgwick, um, I think was, um, I think that was part of what drew Leo and I to each other as as people, as humans. Um, you know, I never I never worked with Leo. You know, there was there was a room. You know, I was not his student. I was never his colleague. There was a rumor we met in a bathhouse. Uh, that that's not true. Um, you know, we we got to know each other through our work. Our respective work and of course his essay is the rectum of grave was was very important to me um and it's some it's it's a very difficult and dense and important essay and it's one that um i'm not sure that i really grasped the first few times i read it but i was also compelled by it um and as you say it's, it's bringing psychoanalysis and and you know intense questions of sexuality into the discussion of AIDS in, in a way that was really sort of groundbreaking. Um, but, you know, Leo and I sort of got to know each other through our work and then we became friends and, you know, had, um, 
uh, I know that you're interested in forms of intimacy. You know, we had a very kind of intimate friendship without ever being, um, you know, the difference between Leo's age and mine is about the same as the difference between your age and, and, and mine, I guess, right? That is different generations. And we were never colleagues. We were never, we were not technically in the same field. He was a professor of French, right? We didn't live in the same city most of the time. Um, but we became very close and had a very particular kind of friendship. And um, he was, he was for me a very important intellectual mentor, intellectually more than professionally, I would say, mm. right. Um, but our friendship was based on, it was talking about ideas. Um, and of course, talking about men too, and talking about um, the things that gay men talk about when they get together, but also really committed to talking about ideas. Well, and for everyone out there, you need to re like they need to type into Google is the rectum a grave and Tim's um, on the eve of a queer future because is the rectum a grave like even just having that word rectum in right this is from the 80s well late 80s the essay right. and like that right away jumped out at me and like this metaphor that really argues against in my opinion Larry Kramer's um, the normal heart rhetoric, his play, and Larry Kramer was really about abstinence or like kind of was really, I don't want to say taking pleasure away from queer men, but was saying, okay, you can't, was blaming queer, queer men for engaging in sex when they knew the risks of AIDS. But that's why I thought Lear Bassani was so polemic in, okay, well, how about the men who are engaging? Because even though we might have this ideal of stopping spreading, you know, men still want to have sex and this is happening. And that's what I really enjoyed is that Leo, like you, Tim, you're able to bring in theoretical ideas without making it so technical that we start to lose the thread. And I don't, you know, one th to make this a queer men versus a the female queer theorists debate, but it is interesting to me how much Eve Sedgwick, I mean, she's informed so much of our work, but I do sometimes wonder, like, it's almost Eve Sedgwick has to be a um, touchstone for queer theory that's done even now with, uh, dissertations. I mean, I always see David Halperin's 100 Years of Homosexuality as more of my touchstone because of the ancient Greek references that I look into. But like, why do you think, Tim, and it's not about Eve Sedgwick, I don't never met her. And it's very sad how, you know, she passed away. Why do you think that there's two or three queer theorists, I'll say Michelle Foucault, Eve Sedgwick and Judith Butler, who really become tokenized. Like, what is it about their work that it becomes such a circular reference point? Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Andrew Rimby, and I am so excited to be talking about Broadview Press. You might be asking, what is Broadview Press, Andrew? 
Broadview is an independent academic publisher in the humanities that produces high-quality, pedagogically useful books for use in university and college classrooms. They publish in the humanities mainly English studies, writing, philosophy, and history, just to name a few genres. And recently, I had on Dr. Jason Holt, who wrote all about the philosophy of sport. And what better summer episode than to talk about what happens when a philosopher dissects the beautiful aesthetics of sporting culture? In the spring, I had on doctors Kyle Stedman and Tanya Rodriguez to talk about what is sound writing, how to make audio projects in the college classroom, how to even have your students create podcasts. And then in the winter, I had on Dr. Dr. Jeffrey Weinstock. He talked about analyzing pop culture. Yes, I even sneak in some Real Housewives questions and how to teach composition and make it fun. He uses this whole metaphor about being a mad scientist in this gothic lab. And in the fall, I had on Dr. Ann Stevens and she talked about literary theory and criticism. And yes, the university season is upon us. So what better way to talk about the college classroom than to actually understand what is literary theory. That's a wonderful episode for all of you out there who teach literary studies. I love Broadview Press. Make sure you use their exclusive code. It's ivory tower on broadviewpress.com. You get 20% off all, all Broadview Press publications. Okay, until the next Broadview Press interview. And now back to the ivory tower boiler room. Hi, everyone. This is Andrew, and I am interrupting what I know is such an exciting Ivory Tower Boiler Room episode to tell you all about one of my favorite podcasts. It's called That Old Gay Classic Cinema, and it's hosted by Christian Garcia. Christian is joined with guest co-hosts to talk about classic cinema films that we know and love, and he analyzes them through a queer lens. So, He's talked about The Sound of Music, Alfred Hitchcock, The Wizard of Oz, Sleeping Beauty, 101 Dalmatians, and recently, Hello, Dolly. I actually was on his first ever episode to talk about my love of The Sound of Music and playing Captain Von Trapp in my high school musical. Then I was joined with Mary DePippi, the host of True Crime in Academia, and our friend Travis Roundtree to talk about Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. Mary just had Christian on True Crime and Academia to talk about female poisoners, including the evil queen from Snow White and actual real life female poisoners. So Christian's podcast is the best. You must add it to your listen list. After you listen to this episode, make sure you head over to That Old Gay Classic Cinema on Apple and Spotify. Make sure you follow him on Instagram at That Old Gay Classic Cinema. And he's also on TikTok. Don't forget TikTok. Okay. I can't wait for you all to listen to That Old Gay Classic Cinema. And now back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Right, that that's a good question. That's a good question, Andrew. I, you know, I want to, I want to just throw, like throw in an anecdote before I answer that question um, about is the rectum a grave? You know, about I don't know, 20, 25 years after that essay came out, when it was already very famous in the United States, and you know, Leo and I were very good friends. Somebody in France wrote to me, and they said, um, "Have you ever heard of this person called Leo Bassani?" Um, I've just read 
this incredible essay is the rectum of grave and we, we would like to translate it. And so I put this person in touch with Leo and when that and, and in France, what they were what they did was publish is the rectum a grave as a very, very short book. Right. And, you know, this is now we're now in the 2000s. We're now like 25 years on. And the publisher in France said we cannot have the word rectum on the cover of the book. We have to change the title. Right. Which. You can't change that title because then it just becomes more than other titles, it becomes something else. So even at that point, there was that that sort of institutional impulse to to normalize, to desexualize, to to move away from the specificity of the body. Um, and I think Leo fought it, and in the end, in the end, they they kept the title. But you know, this speaks to your suggestion to your listeners to. Um, type into Google is the rectum a grave and see what happens when you type the word rectum into Google, you know, you, what comes up. Um, anyway, oh, wait, sorry. Well, I, I'm just curious to like, as a thought experiment, do they think is the asshole a grave? Is the I, anal I, passage a grave? I'm not even sure I don't, like, I think where that would have gone. To, they wanted a different title. They just wanted a totally, I think they, that was the word that was a flashpoint and they just wanted some other some other more benign title um and of course part of the appeal of leo's writing is is his titles is his opening lines is some of his uh, phrasing right this is the importance of writing when one is also a literature professor and reads literature and cares about language and cares about metaphor, which is, I think, um, the difference between the kind of work that we do and the kind of work that would be done in the discipline of history, in the discipline of psychology, in the discipline of sociology, that is in the social sciences, where um, they're not going to put rectum and grave in the title of, of anything they write. Um, because they just don't think that way, right? Um, <clears throat> well, anyway. Yeah, I, sorry, you know, I know we're like, I'm burying the lead here. But I do want to say to like the listeners that it would be as if your publisher had wanted you to take out barebacking in your unlimited intimacy reflections on the subculture of barebacking. Um, but yes, I know we're going to well, get into I, that. And you know... Um, you know one you know one of the things i think we 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 are doing here andrew inevitably as queer scholars of a different generation is sort of looking back to various moments which which turned out a certain way um, and therefore look like there's a kind of inevitability to them from from like this moment but but there was no inevitable this did not that inevitability was just was was not at all apparent at, at those moments right mm -hmm. and you know the my you know my my editor at university of chicago press doug mitchell who has now died very sadly um who was incredible incredible in building the field of gay and queer studies and scholarship um was very supportive but you know the press university of chicago press tried very hard to change the title of my book, Unlimited Intimacy. 
and it also you talk about you you alluded to earlier about when you first saw the cover you know that was not the original cover the book was printed with a different cover for me a better cover a better image and the book was printed with that cover and then there was an objection and the covers had to be destroyed so you know um the cover that you saw and was struck by and like with the with the quote-unquote bareback and the nice ass on it there you go um that was a substitute cover uh, that i didn't come up with after the cover i had fought for and selected and thought a lot about had to be had to be ripped off and destroyed so you know there there are all these backstories about how things um don't always don't always turn out as as one thinks they will and looking back retrospectively um certain certain moments certain figures certain texts become kind of iconic or become touchstones in the way that you were describing with Halperin with Butler with Foucault with Sedgwick with Bassani um but those things are not inevitable and you know um, a whole set of forces that we cannot necessarily see at the time contribute to that to the way in which certain things get taken up and certain things do not and then even things that are taken up sort of um, fall fall out of focus um, so it's been very interesting sort of fascinating to me really to be ha- to have been involved in the beginnings of queer theory uh, and to see how the discipline has evolved and and grown and gone in different directions over the last few decades um, and it was not something that I it was not something that existed when I went to graduate school and therefore it's not something that I knew I was going to be involved in mm. well can you explain what was First, if you still have the original cover somewhere mm. as a photo, please send it to me and I will share I will. it on our social I media. I will. But what was the original cover, Tim? It was it was a it was a photo of um two men, um one of whom was um one of whom was, I guess in the early two thousands, a recognizable actor in um kind of um you know kind of rough gay porn um you don't see his face in the photo he's he's with his partner they're not they're not having sex but they're very physically intimate and for me this was the this 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 image was for me could crystallize what what i was thinking about in the book um and you know it was a it was a published photo and we got the permission of the photographer before we before it was printed on the cover of the book but when the book was advertised i think on amazon the the porn actor saw it and freaked out um he did not wish to be associated with barebacking um and so he lodged an objection and even though he had signed you know signed a release form when he was photographed and the mm-hmm. photographer had given permission the press didn't want to get into it and so that cover was then um off the table that is off the book 
Um, but I, I will send you a copy of that original. And I do, if I, if I had had the presence of mind, I would have, I would have brought upstairs. Um, I, I do have a, I do have a copy of the book with that cover on. Um, it was a kind of uncorrected proofs kind of thing. Um, yeah. Well, and it, it, this conversation reminds me first, I thought it was going to be like a Treasure Island media, like an actual bareback scene on the cover. No. I'm like, whoa, Tim, well, <laughs> good for you. Uh, but I do have to say, though, in your book, it is, it's, there are no pornographic images, right? And I'm assuming that was a press decision because... No, actually, that was, no? That, was actually, oh. that was actually my decision. Um, oh, okay. Right, that was, that was, that was, a, you know, when I wrote that book, I had to think very hard about, okay, how do you write without euphemism about sexually explicit material, both sexual acts and various kinds of representations of those acts in pornography, how does one write about it without euphemism, but without simply also being pornographic, right? Mm. And there's, there's a kind of line there between um, being writing salaciously versus writing clinically, and I actually didn't want to do either of those things. Um, and it seemed important to me to actually not include images from mm. from the porn, um, but to actually describe what was going on, and that was that was um, that was part of the intellectual challenge of the book for me to to describe things in a particular way so that um, I was not glossing over what was going on, um, but I was trying to um, trying to present certain kinds of material in a comp comparatively neutral way to, to say like, let's, let's think about this, let's not just react to it. And of course it's, it's hard with, with pornography, it's, it's hard to do that because the whole point is that you're not supposed to be, it's not designed to generate a neutral response, it's designed to generate a very strong response, right? Mm. Um, but it seemed to me intellectually important to keep open a space of, um, even if it was a fiction of neutrality, in order to think non-judgmentally about what's going on here, right? So that's what I was trying to do in the book, and that's why I did not include images. And anytime you include images in a publication, I had discovered in previous from previous experience, you know, you get into issues of permissions, you sometimes are asked to pay a lot of money, which, which that is amounts of money that are disproportionate to what you would ever, an academic would ever make for um, publishing scholarship. And so I just decided not to, uh, it was a very, it was a very deliberate decision on my part not to include images. So, um, so that was me. <laughs> yeah, well, I asked because, um... Thomas was hard to imagine. He actually faced the issue where um, he had to fight like to keep the images. Mm. And then like, I know Linda Williams's work has faced the same issues. Then there's 
Did you contribute, I forget, Tim, to the gay porn studies anthology? You know, I, I co-edited with two of my former students the, the book called Porn Archives. Um, oh, sorry, and, that's the book I'm thinking, yeah. Porn Archives. So I, 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 I orchestrated that book, I co-edited it with my, my former students, and I, you know, I, I have essays in, I have an essay and the introduction in there, yeah. Um, and we do, we do have images in that book, and um, I was just thinking as I was kind of complaining about, you know, there's, there's the famous Robert Maplethorpe man in a polyester suit, which one of the contributors, Hari Kala, writes about quite beautifully, and about the foreskin, and he, he, we, it was important to reproduce that Maplethorpe image, and, you know, I had to pay out of my own pocket a lot of money for reproducing that image in the book. And then it's reproduced, you know, in a Duke University Press book in a way that um, it's not a great reproduction. You know, it's like, why did I pay all that money for, um, for that one image? It's a great image and Harry writes about it in a beautiful way. Um, but anyway. Um, yeah, well, it's like, I include, do you know that um, experimental 70s film, Pink Narcissus? Mm, okay, yes. so like I include one of these really, I think just beautiful images of like the mirroring um, scene where he's just like faced, the escort is faced with his body in all different angles. And it's, he's revealing in his body, but I wouldn't say it's liminal. Like it's almost pornographic, but it's still could be um on the cover of playgirl um like you don't you're not deep in the pages of playgirl seeing the dicks out um right. but like i would be very upset if that photo couldn't be there because of my analysis so sure. yeah i think all of this is something that actually gets me back to those like the token queer theory thinkers which is you really put sex at the heart of your study. And these this is why I am so drawn to your work, Tim, of the courage it takes. Like you have really opened my eyes. And like, I think that whether it be that I'm talking about Thomas Eakins and the swimming hole and, you know, how the phallus and how the penis is in Whitman's work. I do think, you know, and all Cedric fans out there, I'm not, again, I think, her writing is so wonderfully done, but it's not necessarily sexy. Like, it's not like epistemology of the closet, I don't think is erotic. And neither do I really think history of sexuality by, by Foucault is really erotic and about the body. Like, it is interesting how these works that have been held up. I would say Halperin's 100 Years of Homosexuality is erotic with the pederastia of ancient Greece, which has a lot of controversy in queer circles. Um, but do you think that maybe that's why a Sedgwick, a Foucault, that it kind of is out of the realm of sexiness or the body or erotic behavior, that it kind of becomes sanitized to non-queer readers? I, I Andrew, I think you're, you're putting your finger on something that's incredibly important here. Um, I think even queer readers often appreciate a certain degree of sanitization 
and I suppose what I do, as you as you point out, what I do in my work is sort of is a sort of desanitization, right? I'm the anti-Clorox of queer theory. Um, I never quite thought of it that way before. Um, I I I do think that sex is at the heart of what I do, and um, a number of years ago. Martha Nussbaum in one of her books, I forgot which one now, um, but she was writing about uh, sex and disgust and the way that uh, various kinds of disgust at queer sexuality play out in the law. Um, I'm not summarizing very well now, but she discussed my work because she had read Unlimited Intimacy for, for the press during the process of review. And she referred to me as a sex theorist, not as a queer theorist. And I thought that was sort of right, you know, I thought that she'd, she'd, she like you had, had seen that I would not actually at the center of queer theory or queer studies that actually a lot of what I do is critical of the field. And what is at the heart of my work is trying to think about sex and, and, and the messiness of sex, the the unruliness, the, the unsanitizable dimension of sex and what draws us to that and what also repels us from that. And that's that for me is really at the heart of psychoanalysis. Um, it was what made Freud disreputable in his time. And it's, it's sort of, I try to keep it at the heart of what I do um, because I think that sex is just much more interesting than one would ever know from reading most most work in queer queer, queer theory or queer studies. So, um, so you know, I appreciate I appreciate your your um, recognizing that sex is at the heart of what I what I do and. You know, the, the new book that I've done with Oliver Davis, Hatred of Sex, is another attempt to think about, okay, how does that play out politically? How does that play out psychically? How does that play out even for people who also love sex? Um, so, so I appreciate, I appreciate that. Hey, Ivory Tower Boiler Room listeners and true crime friends. You've heard me gush over this incredible woman and her beautiful products. I'm talking about Mandy Made It. Mandy makes customized and original crochet and cre-cut goods. They are the perfect, unique, one-of-a-kind gift for literally anyone in your life. And she makes incredible home decor. I still have my pumpkins that I put out every fall. I just love them. Check her out on Instagram at M-A-N-D-E-E Made It or search Mandy Made It on Facebook. To order, just slide into her DMs. And if you mention the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, you will receive a free personalized gift with your first order. So... Go on Instagram and look up at Mandy Made It, and Mandy is spelled M-A-N-D-E-E. Again, her handle is at Mandy Made It, 
Mandy spelled M-A-N-D-E-E, and order today. LGBT stories are universal, but each one speaks to the individual heart and soul of the writer telling it. Do you have a story to tell? Or have you been moved recently by an LGBT book, film, painting, television show, or other form of media? Then the Gay and Lesbian Review wants to hear from you. The GNLR believes in bringing awareness to queer art and artists through reviews, commentary, and thought pieces in which the author relates their personal lives to a particular piece of art, a novel, a movie, or what have you. In addition to the print magazine, the GNLR also publishes articles on its blog as well as personal essays on its popular Here's My Story section on glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W dot org. To learn more about submitting an article for the GNLR, visit their writer's guidelines. The link is located at the bottom of the homepage. And if you have any questions, email publisher Stephen Hemrick. That's S-T-E-P-H-E-N dot H-E-M-R-I-C-K at glreview.org. The GNLR and its readers can't wait to see what you have to say. Well, and I think it's so necessary to address him because, well, first, I'll lay my cards out on the table. Maybe they're listening, but I know gay porn directors. One is I.K. Grande. I know... um, Mark McNamara, who directs Naked uh, Sword videos. Um, And I think it's so important to be a scholar of the queer male body and the queer queer male poetics for me to talk to them because they're the ones who are at front and center with the body and all of its representations. It's also why I love my conversations on Fire Island and being at the Belvedere and the clothing optional aspect, but also so many artistic conversations. Like, yes, I always say sex is um, in the atmosphere. Um, It's almost this, um, it's almost like a balloon. Like you can feel it in its diffusive way, also all of the intricacies of conversations of what these nuances are it's why i love there's a book called the black body in ecstasy that i also think so beautifully the author she's just so wonderful in capturing um the language i wish i could remember her name um i wanted to make sure that i found who the author is of the black body in ecstasy and it's jennifer c nash so Shout out to Jennifer C. Nash. Um, I wanted to interrupt this episode just to make sure that I could appropriately give her credit for the black body in ecstasy. Okay, back to the interview. And I do wonder though, like why we know that there's porn studies in academia, but porn studies intersects with literature, philosophy, history, um, sociology. And I do wonder... Is porn studies stronger than ever now, Tim? Or is it on the back burner? Is it something we don't talk about? Like queer theory has moved into other realms, into affect theory with Sarah Ahmed. Again, 
love affect theory and Sarah Ahmed, but it seems like it's taken on different dimensions, but where is the body and the sex? Like what you and Oliver look into with hatred of sex, where is it? Like, is it now even more censored because of a fear of backlash with our current culture in America? That, that's 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 a good question. Yeah, I think the the fear of, I think the fear of backlash, the actuality of it, um, the 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 sense, whether rightly or wrongly, that we will lose um, our academic freedoms, our tenure, our the, all the privileges we have. Something that I have as a tenured academic, that that those will be lost if one is too explicit or forthright about um, about these matters. Um, you know, I have always felt that um, the whole point of tenure and academic freedom is to write about what what interests one and to to expand one's the freedom to to talk about things to think about things to take things seriously um, to really sort of to really get into it. Um, and so I've never, I suppose I have never rightly or wrongly let the fear of backlash, um, stop me going where I, where I want to go, um, intellectually, um, and in terms of what I write about, what I think about, um, I, and I, I want to get to porn studies, the question of porn studies, because I think it's important, um, our conversation is reminding me of a conversation I had with a very dear friend who I will just name Kaja Silverman, who read the manuscript of Unlimited Intimacy and was very acute and very frank in her response to it. And she said, I mean, she's she's so smart, she's so great. And she said, you know, Tim, there are there were moments where you're describing you know, like felching, and you're describing certain things in those um, Treasure Island media films. Mm. And she's like, you know, I just can't go there. And she, she didn't mean she couldn't go there, like, in terms of doing it, or even watching the films, what she meant was she had to stop reading that there was a kind of, there was a kind of, you know, she was very frank about the revulsion that she experienced at certain moments in reading my manuscript. And I hugely appreciated her telling me that and her kind of frankness about it. And I do think that there is, um, there is in our culture, in our society, but also in academia, a kind of um, a squeamishness about the specificity of sex bodies bodily fluids that people are not usually ready to cop to but that does actually really have an effect on what people allow themselves to to think about um and and that may actually help to explain why porn studies has become it seems to me a kind of slightly ghettoized subfield you know, um, part of what um, David Squires and Stephen Rosetsky and I were trying to do in the Porn Archives book was to say, you know, we're not, 
we're not film scholars, we're literary scholars, we're, we're trained in English departments, and in fact there is a lot, there's a long history, there's a long history of pornography and thinking about pornography in literature before, before film is invented, right? Um, before video, before, before the internet, etc. And I think that most of the models, and Linda Williams is sort of iconic here, the models we have for thinking about pornography in the academy, they come from film studies, right? Which, mm-hmm. which you know, Linda's, Linda's work has been incredibly important to me, um, even as I disagree with aspects of it. Um, but, you know, when, when the model comes from film, that makes it harder to think about um, other kinds of non, non-moving image pornography, right? Um, and it's both enabling and disabling. It's, it's enabling because it allows one to do some, you know, if maybe if Unlimited Intimacy had had images in it, um, the book would have really been attacked. But in order to attack it, you actually need to sit down and read it. You can't just flip to an image, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so it was not. It was never attacked in the way that everybody expected it to be. Um, that is by by the right wing. Um, so, what am I trying to say? Um, huh. I, I I think there's I think there's a squeamishness, which is real, which has not gone away, um, including among our most liberal colleagues, um, including you know people who work in gender and sexuality studies. Um, and I think that, you know, I don't know what the direction of porn studies is, is going to be, but I think it's, it's an important field. And I suppose the other thing that I would, that I would want to say about that is that in my work, you know, I, 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 I like to write about the low, right? Like pop culture, low culture, the most sort of, I, I, like, I like to write about extreme porn. I like to think about extreme porn, um, but I also like to write about high culture too, uh, which is, which is um, why I still write about and care about poetry and teach poetry. And I think that when I was you know, thinking about talking with you, it, I sort of, it became clearer to me that you know, you know what I do with Treasure Island Media, what I do with those early Paul Morris films in Unlimited Intimacy is, I, you know, I, I talk about uh, their their innovations, their formal innovations with the conventions of pornographic representation and the money shot, you know, and that attention to form is something that I learned about, learned how to do by being mm-hmm. a literary critic and by writing about poetry by studying poetry so i think that my interest in high culture and in low culture very low um, are not in fact as schizophrenic as they might they might seem yeah well and you know as we're in now unlimited intimacy and treasure island media um i think that something that your book just does so wonderfully and how you think about Treasure Island Media specifically as a company, uh, its model, is it really moved away from vintage gay porn 
like having a long narrative form. Like it was not interested in the story of the porn. It's not interested really in a fantasy of the Roman gladiator or we're in the baths. Like it's not doing nostalgia. Instead, it's here's the names of the men. We're going to show them on the screen and we're going to show the bottom being plowed by 10 guys, for example. Um, like, did you actually have conversations with those involved at Treasure Island Media? Like, do you know context there or those who were the actors or the behind the scenes? You know, I know, I know slightly, I, I have met glancingly um, various guys who, who worked for Paul Morris. Um, I did, you know, I did reach out while, to Paul Morris while I was working on the book. And, you know, Paul Morris has never actually replied to any of my emails. Um, he has solicited various of my students. He's written to a lot of people I know, but he's never replied to an email from me. Um, therefore, I've never had a conversation with him, which I was sort of disappointed about as I was working on the book. Um, you, you're describing, I think, accurately what's going on in those films, especially those early films where, you know, he is very committed to documenting something, right? That is, there was a kind of like this, this idea of a documentary aesthetic, a documentary pornographic aesthetic. And I needed to write about those films because I was trying to, in a way, do something analogous, right? I was trying to bring to light and document a subculture. And it's a subculture that for which this mode of representation is, is is central and so i needed to write about those films and you know when i was when i was conceptualizing the book um i i thought my idea was i'll have a long footnote about bareback porn right and <laughs> when it came to writing the footnote about bareback porn you know the footnote became 100 pages and then it's like two chapters of the book right um, so I, it took me a moment to realize that the, the pornographic documentary representation of this phenomenon at this moment is not a footnote. It's actually uh, sort of central to it. Um, so, you know, and I, you know, my, my sense is that the, the subculture has moved on and what Paul Morris is doing has shifted from that earlier moment. And it was that early, there was that early moment in his work that seemed to me so original, experimental, innovative, um, daring, and um, kind of gritty, you know? I mean, really gritty, <laughs> like gritty yeah. in every sense formally gritty, the medium was gritty, what was going on was, you know, it was, it was, it was, um, it was, it was genuinely messy. Um, and there's something a little to me kind of cleaned up about, about what he, what he puts out now, um, which I think is a response to, to the market. Yeah. Well, what does he put out now, Tim? You know, to me, it's 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 much less distinguishable from what other, you know, gay porn companies put out. Um, yeah. It's more 
stylized is not the word, but um, the ordinariness of the actors is sort of gone, right? Mm -hmm. um, and the the amateurish, which I think the genuinely amateurish quality of those early films, which is part of what, what makes them interesting, uh, is also now gone. Um, so, you know, I, I, I've written more recently stuff that is more critical of Paul Morris and I, you know, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to necessarily, you know, I, I don't want to talk in this podcast about <laughs> all the people, all the people whose work I don't care for. I would rather talk with you about Sony, mm -hmm. about Whitman, about the poets we love, about, about, about things that we love uh, in a way. Um, so. <laughs> no, no, I understand. No, I appreciate you for going there. And do you have another, like, if we go another 15 minutes, is that okay, Tim? Oh, absolutely. Okay, absolutely. I appreciate yeah. it. Because we're yeah. in, this is now the meat, literally, of the heart of your work. But I think it makes sense that we're now here, since what, I even remember when I said the word penis, or talked about there's that section the 28 bathers with Whitman and the bellies I read the white bellies floating as also this um potent image of like the penis erect and like that that's a possibility with the poetics and it was yeah. just fun to see the audiences like my parents were there but they knew they know the work I'm doing um but just the eyebrows raised and like that's exactly that vi visceral the shock and there's something so performative to that. And it makes sense to me why um, when we're talking about porn, it is so stylized, but there's all different categories. But it's also why I'm loving that Playgirl is having a comeback. And I've actually, they follow my podcast and there's such a digital presence now. And it's like the way that their magazine, the centerfold is back with Playgirl. But it's interesting to me, like Playboy really, I don't want to say that the centerfold isn't there, but I do think that men's bodies on display, for some reason, I feel that it's now in the zeitgeist, like because there hasn't been a lot of discussion about the male nude body in pop culture. But I think now we're there, like Fifty Shades of Grey kind of brought that. There's that Netflix series, You, that I think has a lot of male nudity. Um, and it seems... I don't know if you know Zachary Zane's work, but he wrote this book called Boy Slut, which is just so fascinating about being a bi male and all of like the sex parties he goes on as an in investigative journalist. And he was on the podcast. It was just, um, I love the work he's doing, but it's a popular press, Tim. Like, I think that even at the library, I'm seeing more of these risky, and when I'm using risky, I mean, um, taking chances of, like that publishers are taking chances in a, whether it be, I think his is Abrams, um, but I've seen so many different, Harper has um, taken a lot of sexual culture discussions on. Do you think Verso Books um, too, with Bad Gays, um, is this just a disconnect between academia and pop culture right now because i do feel pop culture is taking 
the noon male body is having almost a rebirth of sorts. I love that idea. I love the idea of the of the nude male body kind of being reborn and being um, uh, newly newly displayed to us. You know, um, uh, it's it's all good. Um, and I was not aware that Playgirl was having a resurgence. So I that's that's interesting to 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 learn about. Um, I mean, I have several thoughts in response to what you said. One is, you know, um, but wait, Tim has so much more to say. Yes, I am going to have everyone be on the edge of their seats. I'm having you all in a sexual climax with me. I'm not giving you the money shot until Saturday with part two. But if you would like to hear the whole episode, if you want to hear part two, you can go to our Patreon, patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room, $5 a month. You hear all of our episodes in full. You don't have to wait for parts. You don't have to hear the ads. I love our sponsors and advertisers. Uh, don't get me wrong. But if you don't want to listen to the ads, you can join our Patreon. Uh, so like I said, it's $5 a month and you get access to bonus episodes, the full interviews. You'll see the video interview with Tim. Uh, so that's really exciting. Um, so yeah, maybe I'll see some of you on Patreon. Those of you who can't wait and you need your money shot right away. Um, I'm so excited. Tim's going to talk more about the porn industry. He's going to talk more about whether he thinks academia is very nervous right now in our current climate that even the work he's done and would unlimited intimacy be able to be published in this current climate. He does open up about that. He also addresses Dr. Ramsey Fawaz, who was on the podcast. If you haven't listened to Ramsey's episode as you're waiting for part two, and Ramsey asked, asked him, well, asked him when I was interviewing Ramsey, that if he had a question for Tim, it would be about whether he thinks that you'd have to be tenured to do the work that Tim did with Unlimited Intimacy, especially because Tim is very frank and honest, as you all have heard, even in our conversation and how open Tim has been with me. And I truly appreciate that, Tim, if you're listening. Thank you so much. It means a lot. And because I know Tim hasn't returned to Unlimited Intimacy in a long time in interviews. So all of these nuances, it's just so beautiful to get to open up with him about it and how much unlimited intimacy meant and means to me in my own work. So uh, Ramsey, Tim does address your question and it is very exciting to hear what he thinks about that tenured aspect. Like would someone who's non-tenured be able to take this type of risk when it comes to sex studies and specifically um, gay porn and being so open about this subculture of barebacking. So, so much to anticipate, so much to wait for. Uh, can't wait to see you all on Saturday. Please share this out to your friends. I'd really appreciate that. Please, if you want to record, like if you want to clip any of this, if you want to, you know, share out any um, audio from this, please just mention me on the Ivory Tower Boiler Room Instagram or TikTok. Twitter, X, that's right, we have to call it X. I mean, X is appropriate for this episode. So always, feel free to always share things out from these episodes, but please mention me. Um, 
so I can share it out on our social media. Please feel free to DM us on the Ivory Tower Boiler Room Instagram or on TikTok or on X. And I love to hear from all of you. And I can't wait. Oh, also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps with advertisers. It means a lot to me. Please, please rate and review us. Please follow us if you're not following us on Apple or Spotify. Um, you also can rate us on Spotify, so please do that. And I will see you all back again in the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I hope that I didn't give anyone too uh, much of a tease that you have blue balls now. But if I did, you'll have to wait till Saturday. Thank you so much for listening to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. This is Andrew Rimby, the host and director of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room podcast. I am joined with Mary DePippi, our chief contributor and host of True Crime and Academia. Please, if you're not, make sure that you follow the Ivory Tower Boiler Room and True Crime and Academia on Instagram and Twitter and TikTok too. Remember our TikTok. That's where all the exciting video clips are posted. Make sure that you join our Patreon if you want more Ivory Tower Boiler Room and True Crime and Academia content. All the video interviews are on our Patreon. All of our bonus episodes are on Patreon. And it just means so much for you to join for $5 a month. You unlock all of our bonus episodes. And also, it just helps support the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Thank you so much for giving Mary and I a needed jolt of caffeine for coffee. Thanks for the $5. Head to patreon.com slash Ivory Tower Boiler Room. We cannot wait for you all to listen to our summer season. There are so many exciting episodes. And we're also celebrating three years of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room podcast. So. Without further ado, thanks for listening. Make sure you listen to the next episode next week. And have a wonderful summer season, everyone. Okay, bye now.